kind of wish this song would just take this turn in the middle of the song. You're welcome, Neil. Doofus just became an American citizen so he could vote for Bernie. Can I get this Canadian citizenship, please? This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Today, school lunch sucks. It tastes bad. It's lousy food. It's not nutritious or in any way good for you. And the people who serve it, they don't seem to care at all. Well, what if all those outcomes, the bad food, the mean lunch ladies, were all the result of choices that were made at the national level affecting all school lunch programs across the United States? Here in the States, for whatever reason, we devalue care work, whether it's mothering or homemaking or serving school kids lunch. We don't reward those contributions to society, and kids need lessons in socialization that are learned outside the classroom so they can have a complete education that doesn't reside only within textbooks. In cutting budgets of school lunch programs, slashing wages of workers, worse food is given to kids, school kids, and the people giving it to them have to work harder and faster for less money, leading to a work environment that's not conducive to teaching children lessons about life that can definitely be learned in a cafeteria, and kids learn lots about themselves in the lunchroom. Our guest today argues that if we have better, real food served to kids from scratch that is not processed, we'll have healthier kids combat poverty, fight climate change, and have a major impact on all U.S. agricultural policy as huge food processors processors depend on sending their lousy food to schools across the country for the big profits and on their bottom line. We'll find, exact, find out exactly how revolutionary, challenging, and changing school lunch programs can be when we talk to civil society and community studies scholar Jennifer E. Gaddis, author of The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. Jennifer is assistant professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can find out more about Jennifer at jenniferelainegaddis.com and you can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Jennifer E. Gaddis. That's G-A-D-D-I-S. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. And Alex and I are both running fevers this morning, which is really fantastic. What is your uh, fever selling at right now, Alex? I'm at a brisk 102. Oh, that's a pretty high one. I got a, got that kind of sickness that uh, you put a second pair of pants in your bag when you leave the house. No, that's really nice. That's I, think a... I, ju- I think I just have the flu, but it is, uh, it's rough stuff, man. So I just found out that, you know, they've always said 98.6 is what your body temperature is supposed to be. They did that study over a century ago in a hospital where a lot of people were running fevers. So now they know it's actually probably 97.8, which is a relief for me because every time I've ever seen my doctor, he's like, okay, yeah, your temperature is 98.1. It's 97.9. I was always thought I was on the verge of death. But apparently, I'm just kind of normal. And my fever isn't like yours. It's not continuing. It's not 102 degrees. It's probably around 99 degrees and just kind of subtle. But man, 
Both of us are doing really bad this morning, Alex, and I'm hoping this only gets better. But it does remind me that this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what awaits you on the off-world colonies? What awaits you on the off-world colonies? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a book we featured on yesterday's show, Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What awaits you in the off-world colonies? Chris C. says, sex robots. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, Marty P. says, same old patriarchy. <laughs> Is that the guy who's second in charge of the uh, Fraternal Order of Police? Because that would be great. Uh, I don't think it's a guy. <laughs> so proving yourself right with that patriarchy there, Chuck. It's the Marty thing. It's uh, the Marty thing. Greg M. says, corporate control of the means of oxygen. Thomas S. says, a new life and new opportunities. What awaits you in the off-world colonies? Paolo S. says, exotic carpets. <laughs> what the? Uh, Mark C. says, attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Mm-hmm. Nathaniel T. says, I'm hoping some kind of space grog. Joe S. says, I'm hoping for an endless su- supply of pan-galactic gargle blaster. If that isn't available, just old, just a well-muddled old-fashioned. And then finally, Amy M. says, if, pre- if previous colonies are any example... Blankets infected with smallpox. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, one more. Uh, you've got one more in there. Thomas K., student debt. <laughs> it's unavoidable. Again, leave your question to this week's question from... Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email Alex or I, chuck at thisishell.com. Alex or at, at thisishell.com. Uh, best answer gets Peter Ward's book, The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of St- Space. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. It's time for listener feedback and your email sent to us at chuckatthisishell.com, tweeted to us, messaged to us via Facebook. Ray in Westerlow, New York, writes about our weekly meet and greet, which we always say is more a think and drink. This is how office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Ray makes the point that I understand you're referencing Fridays at Carrie's Lounge as think and drinks is a rewarding rewarding of Chicago's stop and drink. I have no idea what stop and drink is. Absolutely no clue. But I'm old enough to be on the cusp of TV final expenses insurance eligibility. And I assure you the proper sequence is drink before you think. So while Ray says we should drink before you think, I gotta say, you know, I always thought it was think before you drink. But, you know, I think he's right. Because if you think before you drink, then you're probably going to come up with reasons why you shouldn't be drinking. So, yeah, I would say Ray's probably right. You should drink before you think. So this is a drink and think not a think and drink. And I want to thank you, Ray, for correcting us that this is a drink and think, not a think and drink, because often when you think about drinking before you drink, you come up with stupid reasons why not to drink, like how it's bad for your mind and body. Herbert writes us with a guest suggestion, and Herbert's not the first person to suggest themselves as a guest. Herbert writes, well, obviously you are a giant and I am a relative pissant in the great podcast universe. First of all, I was unaware there was a great podcast universe. I thought it was a fair to Midland podcast universe. And uh, yeah, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, sure. That said, I am a great guest, no lie, and perhaps we could do each other some good in the free market of ours. Herbert then gives a link to his podcast, Radical Reset, so I'm thinking, I'm hoping the free market reference was sarcastic. Uh, Herbert continues, simply, I'm an advocate for something totally new, anti-politism. It is radically different in whether on your show we discuss its features spelled out in my book available for free in the Kindle library, A Radical Reset, or more likely some other subject of your choosing, I am your man. Obviously, I'm looking to expand my own reach for my podcast, but perhaps this can be a win-win for us both. In any case, I look forward to discussing the possibilities. Respectfully, Herbert. The notion of anti-politism, Herbert, whatever that is, is intriguing, and we will look into it, but free markets, win-wins, and expanding your reach, uh, those aren't things we're all that into, apparently, here on This Is Hell, as we've been doing this so far for 23 years, and still, nobody's heard of us. Kim sent a couple guest suggestions, and neither one was her, surprisingly enough. Kim writes, two possible interviews on nuclear power. The first, floating nuclear power plants. The academic Lomonosov, M-O-L-O-M-O-N-O-S-O-V, academic Lomonosov. One is already installed. They plan to make six more and install them in China, Brazil, etc. Many countries want them. Who to interview about this, I don't know. Perhaps an expert from beyond nuclear a watchdog organization floating nuclear power plants. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea when a tsunami hits. The second guest suggestion is on Kazakhstan's nuclear fallout, a show on Sean's Russia blog, The Radioactive Mutants of Semipaltinsk. What a story. Generations of people swimming and living in highly polluted radioactive lakes, etc. Thanks, Kim. No, thank you, Kim. We'll contact Sean Guillory, a past guest on This Is Hell, over at Sean's Russia blog and follow up because these are definitely hellish guest suggestions. People swimming around in polluted radioactive lakes. Holy crap. Mark writes to us for a little help. Mark says, hey, Chuck, it was great hanging out with you at last week's office hours and great to meet Mel the cat. The studio is looking and sounding fantastic. My friend Rick is asking me for help. I wonder if you might have any ideas. Rick is from my pre-Chicago days. He's a composer and performer. I met him in Urbana when he was co-teaching a class about designing a society. Currently, he is working on a small concert tour for his duo, The Prince Mishkins. You can find out more at princemishkins.com and another performer, Charlie King. They're looking for a place in Chicago, a venue for an audience of about 30 people where they could cover expenses with a $15 to $20 ticket. Generally speaking, they do lefty anti-war folk cabaret music. His political orientation is probably along the lines of being someone who knows that the School of the Americas was and that it turned into the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation and that Rick is against both. First, I'm wondering if the Carrie's Lounge upstairs art studio space might be an option for them. Is it a possibility to do a small musical event for about 30 people up there? They're looking for a Friday night or weekend in late February or early March. If not, can you think of any other places that might work? I'm imagining them in a large house doing a living room concert or a Unitarian coffee house room or something along those lines. Thanks for your consideration. See you on the radio, Mark. Let's start with Mark's request. Pete at Carrie's Lounge is going to talk to Mark about this, but we're not certain if Carrie's is the right venue. If you would like to host a living room concert or 
you have access to a coffee house or any space you think might work for the Prince Michigans and about 30 of their closest friends in late March, early April at a 15 to $20 cover charge, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and we will get you in touch with Mark. That said, we have a big announcement to make right now. Every year, we throw a listener appreciation party for you all at Carrie's Lounge, an all-day affair featuring food, music, art, raffles, giveaways, and lots of listeners of This Is Hell. All of the art featured in the art show and all of the music performed is done by either listeners of This Is Hell or by artists or musicians suggested by listeners of This Is Hell. This year's party will take place on Saturday July 25th. That's six months from now. I'm giving you a lot of heads up beginning around 3 p.m. and going all day and night. And this year, as we will not have done a show earlier that day for the first time in 23 years, I won't be so exhausted that I can hardly function. So it's bound to be a lot more fun, at least for me. I don't know about you, but for me, it's going to be a lot more fun. So the party is happening in about six months, and we want to hear your suggestions for artists whose work you'd like to see and musicians who you'd like to hear perform at this year's fifth annual 20th anniversary party, which means we've been on air for 24 years, not 25. I know math is complicated. So if you know any artists or musicians or are one yourself and would like to be part of of this year's party, email me at chocolatethisishell.com or drop by during office hours on Fridays. That's listener feedback and This Is Hell. Send us your thoughts, comments, criticisms, and suggestions to us via email, Facebook, Twitter. It doesn't matter. We'll probably read it on there. Coming up on This Is Hell, school lunch programs keep facing budget cuts leading to uncaring school lunch workers and school lunches that are not good for students. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcasting host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Tens of millions of children depend on school lunches, and for whatever reason, school lunch budgets keep getting slashed. The quality of service the students are getting deteriorates, and the food they're being served gets worse and worse. But school cafeterias can be sites of revolutionary change if school lunches were suddenly filled with real food, unprocessed, made from scratch. What students eat for lunch would have a huge impact on things like their medical well-being, poverty, and yes, even climate change and challenging agribusiness practices. Here to help us understand the shortcomings of school lunch programs and how improving them can cause major changes far outside the classroom and school, civil society and community studies scholar Jennifer E. Gaddis is author of of the labor of lunch, why we need real food and real jobs in American public schools. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. You can find out more about Jennifer at jenniferelainegaddis.com, and you can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Jennifer E. Gaddis. That's G-A-D-D-I-S. You write in 2004 after a long day at work, Lisa, a 48-year-old assistant cook in New Haven, Connecticut, took off her apron and joined a delegation of workers to give her carefully planned testimony on the status of the school lunch program to a packed school board meeting. Even though Lisa was in a union, Unite Here Local 217, she worried that speaking before the board of education might result in workplace retaliation, but she felt morally obligated to draw attention to the district's cost-cutting measures. Aramark, the for-profit company tasked with managing New Haven's school lunch program, had slashed workers' wages and benefits and lowered the quality of the food they'd served. 
How much worse had the quality of food become with cutting costs? Because I don't think people really realize how much the how much worse the food does get when they just cut costs just even a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I would start by saying that um, one thing that's actually kind of hopeful is that um, since 2012, with the enactment of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, there have actually been some major improvements in the quality of school lunches around the country. Um, but even those changes um, are really under threat right now with the Trump administration. So um, there's been kind of two major announcements so far that are already rolling back some of the improvements to whole grains and um, fresh fruits and vegetables that really went a long way in improving um, I'd say both the taste and nutritional quality of school lunches. Um, but one thing that's important to recognize in that example that you just mentioned about um, a, like a food service um, department that was outsourced to Aramark is that um, school lunch programs that operate within the National School Lunch Program are actually supposed to be not-for-profit entities. So whenever they contract with a for-profit company like Aramark, um, there's really only a couple ways in which a for-profit company can actually make a profit um, within a non-profit uh, system, and that is basically to find a way to make either the food cheaper or to make the labor cheaper. So I think that um, there were a lot of instances um, in the case of New Haven where um, a lot of the workers really felt like um, the food quality was getting lower. So the food might be scientifically nutritious because it has to meet certain standards, um, but the taste and kind of the appearance of the food and some of the things that the U.S. Department of Agriculture doesn't really account for, like industrial fillers and food. Um, so these different kinds of additives that um, might kind of make food um, less healthy, but um cheaper to serve were some of the things that they were really concerned about. So, yeah, I think um, definitely um, the school lunch program um, as a whole um, really faces this real issue where um, we don't really value food in, in a lot of contexts in the U.S. Um, or um, care work, so the work that it um, takes to um, raise healthy children. And when we look at school environments, um, you kind of have both of those things going on where um, you have um, a very feminized um, labor force that's providing care for kids at school and food, and neither of those things um, is really uh, something that we provide a lot of economic value to in the U.S. Um, both are kind of expected to be cheap. That answer has led me to about 52 follow-up questions, Jennifer. You were mentioning the impact of the Trump administration on school lunch programs. Is this a policy area where Democrats and Republicans are very different? Because I remember back during the Reagan administration, uh, Republicans wanting to have ketchup reestablished as a vegetable on, on kids' food plates. So I remember the Republicans doing this for years and years now. So is this a place where Republicans and Democrats are very different? Well, unfortunately, um, I would say that school lunch has become very politicized in a partisan way. But if we look back at when the National School Lunch Program was first created in 1946, and the kind of 50 years before that, that there was a lot of activism at more of the local and state level to create nonprofit school lunch programs, school lunch used to be like an issue that really was not politicized in the same kind of way and was certainly not viewed as a partisan issue. In fact, um, there were a number of Republican legislators who were quite influential in um, creating the National School Lunch Program to begin with. Um, but I do think that um, there have been some kind of reforms over time that have been good things that have happened under both Republican and Democratic um, like presidential administrations. Um, but certainly, if we look at 
that um, when school lunch has really suffered the most, I would say exactly what you pointed to, which is the Reagan administration, which actually cut the school lunch budget by um, over 25%. That had a huge impact on the quality of food and really, um, I think, did a lot to drive um, middle class and upper middle class families away from the program. And school lunch, um, as like the food quality really declined, I think became um, really associated as like welfare food for poor children. So I think that was a major hit that, that really occurred um, underneath a Republican administration. And then the most recent changes within uh, the Trump administration, I think, um, are sort of a response to two things. Um, one, um, the Trump administration just generally um, wanting to undo um, things that were sort of positive legacies of the Obama administration. And then secondly, um, the influence of a lot of um, lobbyists, particularly from companies that would benefit from these changes, like um, potato, um, like the potato um, growers association and a number of the kind of frozen food companies um, are definitely um, companies that have kind of lobbied for this rollback of the regulations that has occurred in the last um, three or three or so years. So to you, what explains the uh, and I, I'm not trying to make this an anti-Republican or an anti-conservative discussion, but what explains the disconnect between the embrace of family values on the right, Republicans and conservatives? What explains that embrace of family values while at the same time cutting the costs that money you're spending on kids' lunches, which makes the, the food worse and makes them much less healthy? I think that's a fantastic question, and I don't have an answer for you, but I think that certainly social policy that actually really um, prioritizes like children and family well-being um, would be one that is really supporting local and organic um, agriculture and farmers who use regenerative practices that really help combat climate change and keep money circulating in local economies. But unfortunately, I think Republican policymakers, like um, many Democratic policymakers for that matter, um, have a lot of um, just vested interests and lobbyists, you know, who um, are really, uh, I I think, benefiting from this very industrial model of how school lunch is provided. And um, even, for instance, um, Amy Klobuchar, who's one of the Democratic presidential candidates now, um, she was very influential in lobbying the U.S. Department of Agriculture to roll back some of the restrictions on, um, in particular, um, counting like they wanted to be able to count um, tomato paste on pizza as a vegetable. (laughs) And um, like there aren't a lot of tomatoes that are grown in Minnesota where Amy Klobuchar is from, but Schwann's, which is a major manufacturer of frozen pizza for schools is headquartered there. So I think that um, certainly there are politicians on kind of both sides of the aisle that I think are listening more to industry influence and in particular kind of these powerful big food companies instead of really thinking about uh, what long-term well-being would look like for children and their families and for all of the um, people who work across the food chain oftentimes in very low-wage jobs um, making food for these companies that really accrue a lot of profit from selling cheap food to schools. And now we have spoken about Amy Klobuchar on today's show more than we have on all of our other shows combined. So thank you, Jennifer. (laughs) I really appreciate that. 
<laughs> yeah, and for what it's worth, um, I would say that actually the other Democratic um, presidential candidates, in particular um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, have much, much more um, progressive platforms in terms of what they would do with school lunch. Um, both of them are advocating a universal free school lunch program and a massive expansion of federal investment in farm-to-school programs. So I think that... Um, Certainly, like my own take from um, about a decade of research on this topic aligns much more with the kind of changes that they're proposing versus the kind of rollbacks that Amy Klobuchar was championing. You quote Lisa, the uh, school lunch worker, saying that maybe many aren't aware, are not good because the, my coworkers and I, at immense personal cost, have attempted to maintain standards and keep the children from being affected, including working extra hours without pay. We are wearing down quickly under a corporate management mentality with wages that are not in keeping with the cost of even getting to work, let alone feeding our own families. The lunch workers are working at immense personal cost, which is what I hear from Chicago teachers when I talk to them at the bar downstairs from our studio, how the cost of school supplies has been dumped on teachers. What's wrong with depending upon charity and the kindness of the community to give children a quality, accessible education and good school lunches? Can a good school system run on the kindness in the hearts of its neighbors? Well, I think that um, it's really hard because a lot of people might have good intentions, but that doesn't mean they have the economic resources to devote um, to not only ensuring children have high-quality education, but also high-quality food. And when we look at the history of school lunch, I think one of the things that we can see is that when we rely on local efforts, so for instance, right now, there's a lot of local fundraising efforts to eliminate lunch debt. So that's like debt that kids would accrue um, in the lunchroom that might lead them to be shamed in some sort of way in the cafeteria. Um, you know, when we rely on those kinds of charitable initiatives, what ends up happening is that, um, on the one hand, um, there's some communities that have people who are more able to afford um, contributing to those kinds of initiatives, and other communities where there might just be like so many people that are struggling, you know, just on their own that they don't have excess money to devote to these kinds of causes, even if they feel like what's happening in the schools is wrong and they want to be making a difference. So I think that um, we have to kind of keep in mind that um, economic resources don't look the same in all communities. And by relying on private charity and people's choice to ensure children's well-being, I think that that really lets the government off the hook for something that we as um, like residents of this country should really be able to expect from the government as um, kind of a minimum, um, minimum thing for facilitating um, children's well-being in the world. You write that what's more, workers have been instructed to hawk unhealthy, new and enticing extras to children who could afford to pay for brain, brand name chips, drinks and candy, while kids in the free and reduced price lunch program received food that Lisa, the school lunch worker, said was not always of decent quality. Have for-profit and market solutions led to institutionalized inequality being introduced into schools? And if so, what happens when children from the very beginning of their public education are divided by class? That is, whether they're poor, middle class, or rich, or anywhere else in between. What happens when we bring class inequality into the classroom? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. And I think um, it's not only um, that 
children are really separated in this um, kind of visible way in school cafeterias by class, um, by what sort of foods they might be eating, but also there tends to be a lot of racial segregation as well um, in school cafeterias. And part of it has to do with um, how the National School Lunch Program operates. So just to kind of explain that for a second, um, kids would qualify for free reduced price or full price lunches depending upon their family's income. So if your family um, earns below 130% of the federal poverty line, you would get free lunch. If it's between 130 and 180% of the federal poverty line, it would be um, basically your lunch would cost 40 cents, um, no matter kind of where you are in the country. Um, but if you're above that um, threshold, um, then basically what ends up happening is um, you pay whatever your local school district sets as the price for school lunch. So um, on average, I would say that um, it ends up being um, about um, $2.50 or so would be kind of a typical price for an elementary school lunch. Um, but for any family that is above 185% um, of the federal poverty line, which um, just to give people a reference would be about $47,600 for a family of four, um, you would be expected to pay like that full price for your kids. So if you have um, a couple kids in school, um, that could be um, for an elementary school lunch, like 5 or $6 um, every day. And for some families, that's really unaffordable. Um, I actually have a few students um, where I teach here at University of Wisconsin at Madison who are from um, like the East Coast, so in particular like New Jersey and New York, and they've told me that, that their high school lunches um, could be as much as 5 or $6 um, for like the kind of government subsidized school lunch, and that they wouldn't participate not because they felt, felt like the food wasn't good enough, but, but because their families couldn't afford to spend that much um, on a given day for school lunch. So there's a number of reasons why why people might not be participating in um, the National School Lunch Program and taking that government-subsidized lunch. But I think that there are a lot of kids. Um, so there's about 20 million eligible children who could participate in this program who currently opt out. Um, some it might be because they really just can't afford that paid price. Some might actually qualify for free or reduced price meals, but for one reason or another um, don't feel like what the cafeteria has on offer is the right choice for them. But a lot of those kids are actually coming from middle class and upper middle class families, and they are sort of making the choice that maybe their kids don't want to wait in line, um, or maybe they just don't like the food that's on offer in the cafeteria. So those kids um, really are predominantly either bringing a lunch from home or they're joining the a la carte line if their school sells other food in competition with the um, federally subsidized and government-regulated school lunch. So that's where we see a lot of these things that Lisa kind of referred to as these enticing extras. So things that um, wouldn't actually meet the nutritional requirements of the school lunch that kids who qualify for free or reduced price lunches are taking. Um, so things that um, maybe are actually less nutritious um, and could be sold at a higher cost. Um, schools have kind of been boxed into um, needing to rely on that revenue because unlike other kinds of programs in public schools like math class or gym class um, that are funded through kind of the educational um, general budget, school lunch um, is a totally separate funding stream um, that really relies on federal um, reimbursements for meals that are served and children's payments. 
students. So um, schools in a lot of cases, especially if their participation rates in the federal school lunch program are low, in order to kind of make ends meet um, and have a financially self-sustaining program, they rely a lot on just you know selling kids whatever kids will buy. Wow. So you write the New Haven School Lunch Program. This is the one that Lisa's involved in. Is part of the U.S. National School Lunch Program, the NSLP, which was created in 1946, as you were mentioning, with the goal of uplifting the health of the nation's children and supporting the American food and farm economy. For over 70 years, however, the NSLP has failed to escape the trap of cheapness. Cheap, in the way I use the term, isn't just a synonym for low cost. Rather, it is the guiding political and economic philosophy, business strategy, and consumer expectation that shapes our everyday lives, one that has had disastrous, disastrous effects on the healthfulness of school lunches and the wider world, the cheap factory farmed and industrially manuf- manufactured foods that make up the core of the standard American diet are making us sick, so much so that treating preventable dietary diseases has become a multi-billion dollar industry. So is what is happening in the school lunchroom just uh, simply a, a reflection of broader, wider culture and society here in the United States that we simply we don't we don't care very much about diet. We don't care very much about what we put in our systems as long as it's cheap, as long as it's low cost. We don't care very much about caring. We don't value uh, motherhood that much. We don't value all the people who work in caring industries that much. Is the school lunchroom then just a microcosm of how much the United States people in the United States just simply don't care about themselves or others. I think that in many ways it is a microcosm, but it's also more than that. I think it's also a leverage point for change, um, in part because this is a really widespread program. So there's about 100,000 um, individual like school districts like across the country that are, um, or sorry, not school districts, um, schools that are participating in this program. So that's about 95% of all public schools. And private schools are also eligible to participate in this program as well. So there's already this very widespread infrastructure um, in practically every community that you can think of in the United States, whether it's urban or suburban or kind of small town or um, rural, uh, they have like a school lunch program. And in a lot of like small towns and rural areas, um, this might actually be like the school kitchen and cafeteria, like the largest restaurant in the area. So when you actually think about what it would look like to be using these public dollars and this infrastructure that we already have, um, like just in terms of like federal government contribution, um, we actually spend almost $14 billion on this program every year. And that's just the federal government um, kind of contribution to the program. That's not including um, payments from children or um, ad- additional funds that states might contribute. So we're spending a lot of money on this program, and there's about 30 million kids who on any given day are eating through the National School Lunch Program. So both as an opportunity to really reshape like consumer tastes and expectations around food. Schools offer, I think, a really compelling place to um, work on that, um, but also just this um, way for um, institutions within communities to begin supporting a really different kind of community-based agriculture. Um, I think that schools offer tremendous potential for how we can start to really rethink what we want out of our food system and start making kind of concrete change at the local level. So I think, yes, it's a microcosm, but also to me, it's a really interesting leverage point for thinking about how we can change things for the better in the future.
It also made me think that federal programs might be a real site of vulnerability for po uh, possibilities for reform because people in every state are affected by those policies. Are federal policies then a, a place where you think that we can find real change, not just in school lunch programs, but in any policy, because it is a place where uh, every state, everybody in every state is affected? Well, that's an interesting question, and one that I think is really challenging because sometimes um, policymakers really don't listen to what people have to say. <laughs> so, for instance, um, in the last round of rollbacks to the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which was um, kind of the effort that Michelle Obama championed, um, when the USDA announced that they were going to change the requirements for whole grains and salt um, and flavored milks in schools, uh, the USDA had to accept public comment for a period of, I believe it was 60 days or so, and the overwhelming majority of public comments, um, like just almost all of them, were saying, we do not support these changes. And surveys um, from organizations like the Pew Charitable Trust show that, um, in general, um, these policies surrounding improving healthy school lunch standards and getting more local food into schools are very, very broadly supported across the United States. Um, and so I think that um, a, a real challenge is that even though um, these are things that um, we can sort of point to um, with evidence of saying, you know, these are changes that um, the public really wants to see moving in a direction of higher quality and more like environmental and health consciousness, um, not the reverse. Um, what we end up seeing is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, doesn't necessarily listen to those concerns. So I think that um, certainly federal programs offer a lot of reach um, because if you can get the policy changes to go in the direction that you're advocating for, um, it's a lot of change across a very wide scale. So that's very compelling. Um, but I think we're um, kind of seeing the situation. I think that um, SNAP, so the um, like uh, food stamp program, I think is another example of this where um, there might actually be a lot of public resistance to the kinds of changes that are being proposed by the administration. But um, that's not to say that um, the administration is actually listening to what people are saying in response to those proposed changes. You write, food for children to eat at school is prepared by a woman, a child's caregiver, a private sector factory worker, or a public sector lunch lady for free or for poverty wages. Let me pause for a moment to explain how debates about school lunch are fundamentally about care, what it means to care well, how much care is worth, and whether caring for public goods like children and the environment should be the private responsibility of individuals in the home or a public responsibility that is collectivized and shared. Is school lunch program austerity then about institutionalized patriarchy or even misogyny in the United States? Or is it about simply capitalism that caring gets in the way of the bottom line? I think it's both. And I think that um, we have to sort of see the development of our school lunch program today through the lens of patriarchal capitalism and the kind of constraints that that placed on the development of the program when it first started. So um, when I actually started doing research for this project, I was really doing field work. I was spending time um, in kitchens and cafeterias and out on farms and in food processing facilities, um, kind of all along the supply chain. And over time, I got really curious about kind of why things look the way that they do. And that really pushed me to do a lot of historical research. And as I was doing this historical research, I really couldn't escape, um, on the one hand, how um, gender and gendered expectations of labor and of the 
sort of value of care um, really shaped um, some of the early constraints that the first founders of school lunch programs encountered, but also this need for capitalism to have both a cheap supply of care work to reproduce workers and a cheap supply of nature um, or food um, in this case um, really shaped in a lot of ways some of the expectations surrounding um, what school lunch should be used for and what budgets um, should look like in terms of uh, not only paying for the food, but um, uh, paying for the workers themselves. And I think um, from the very beginning, there were discussions um, back in the 1890s when these um, nonprofit school lunch programs first started about whether they should be free for all children or just um, free for kids who were so poor that their families couldn't afford um, the school lunches themselves. And I think that there was this real concern that if school lunch was given for free to everyone, that it could lead to um, this breakdown of work ethic for the children and for their families. So that was kind of a common talking point at the time. And I think that there was also this issue where um, you know, before there were federal funds poured into this program, it really did depend on um, local contributions, so oftentimes from um, philanthropists and from money that maybe parent-teacher associations would raise. Um, women's clubs were sort of very active in this space. Um, but what, whatever money that they um, would raise, um, they would oftentimes use to pay for the school lunches of um, kids who couldn't afford to um, buy their own lunches, and they would oftentimes donate their own labor um, to make the expense of school lunch less um, because they had to sort of convince oftentimes it was male um, policymakers and like, you know, men who were on these um, school boards to kind of give their experiments a shot. So whatever they could say in terms of like, we will minimize cost by supplying our own labor or supplying, you know, cheap labor um, from like working class women um, was one of the ways in which they were able to sort of get their foot in the door by saying like, we promise it won't cost a lot and we promise promise we will sort of raise the money on our own and it won't take money from like what you consider to be like an educational part of um, the school day. There, there were some places around the country that were successful um, in actually convincing school boards that school lunch had educational potential and they um, oftentimes kind of followed this John Dewey model of experiential education and would do garden-based education and cooking classes and canning and there were a lot of ways in which kids themselves were sort of involved in um, food production and kind of connected it to different aspects of their academic learning. But I would say that that was a little bit more the exception than the rule. And the rule is more so like, well, moms will pay, like, they won't pay. Um, moms can prepare lunches for free in the home environment. So why would we spend public dollars on um, providing kids' school lunches um, when we could actually be getting that for free um, when parents do it themselves in the home. So I think that they encountered a lot of um, just real assumptions about where care work should be taking place and whose responsibility it was um, that put a lot of pressure early on um, for this program to really um, minimize costs as much as possible at the expense of some of the broader vision that people brought to what school lunch programs could be. 
considering your research into school lunch programs and the impact that they can have on students' lives, what's your reaction to the constant laying of responsibility for the shortcomings in education at the feet of families and individuals and instead of the system within which their children operate eight or nine hours a day, nine months out of the year, if not more? Is, is this approach to, like the Obama era, uh, approach to addressing nutrition, not that nutrition shouldn't be addressed, I'm not saying that, but does that provide some cover, some sort of neoliberal cover for addressing other issues that are far more important, like the issues of poverty and malnutrition? I think that certainly it does, um, and I, I think that one of the reasons why I, in the book, am a really strong advocate for schools um, developing the capacity to cook from scratch is that I think that um, that opens up a lot of possibilities for them to not only create higher quality jobs for cafeteria workers who, um, under the Obama administration rules, you know, they might just be reheating foods that are a little bit more nutritious, right? But they're not necessarily cooking from scratch. So as long as they're reheating foods, oftentimes workers are in three to four hour positions in the middle of the day. um, And that makes it really difficult for them. And oftentimes they have to have two or even three jobs just to make ends meet. So I think that um, if we focus on these deeper reforms and look at kind of the structure, um, it's not about substituting slightly higher quality or more nutritious foods into our existing school lunch system, but it's about asking these questions of, well, why is cooking from scratch so rare in American public schools when there's so many other countries where um, in their school lunch programs, cooking from scratch is totally normal. And if we do start to develop the ability to cook from scratch, what does that say in terms of our ability to then um, source food very differently? Um, because, you know, as long as what you're doing is just reheating food, you're pretty reliant on um, big food companies that will source all the ingredients and turn it into a finished product for you to reheat. But if you can actually take these ingredients and transform them into a meal, you can be um, a lot more responsive to supporting farmers and ranchers and other food producers in your area. And I think that it also kind of allows people to be a lot more responsive to the changing demographics of who's in public schools and what sort of meals make them feel like included and comfortable in the school food environment. So I think that, um, you know, when we look at the kinds of nutrition changes that happened under the Obama administration, um, I think that that sort of points to some of the limits of these neoliberal approaches to food systems reform. And what we really need to do is take a lot more seriously these fundamental questions about how we value labor, how we value like the environment, and really start to restructure our existing programs in ways that, that really allow us to use public resources to build a much better future. So is big agribusiness then opposed to this kind of school lunch reform from scratch and real food? Because I would think that that would, if that's the case, that they are opposed to it, then they would become a huge obstacle, if not something that is insurmountable in this day and age of lobbying and the impact of money in Washington. Yeah, I think that it is a big obstacle. And um, in one of the chapters of my book, I kind of look at how these big food companies that sell products to schools are responding to more and more activists um, and parents calling for what they oftentimes will call real food in schools. So that's food that is made from these more basic ingredients. And so one of the trends that I really saw happening is a lot of these manufacturers are trying to reformulate um, 
some of their products. So it might not be their whole product portfolio, but they're at least reformulating a product here or there to be what they call clean label. So that means um, the product is um, manufactured without different types of unwanted additives. So things like high fructose corn syrup or um, artificial colors, artificial flavors, that kind of thing. And they're sort of presenting that back to schools as like, hey, we fixed the problem with all these parents who are concerned about chemicals in food. Um, and instead of having chopped and formed chicken nuggets, now we have whole muscle like chicken tenders. And so those kinds of changes um, certainly make food a little bit healthier, but they don't do anything to change um, the conditions for workers, not only in school kitchens, but really along um, the supply chain um, in the U.S. And I think that um, industry is like really trying to sort of position these clean label foods as the only logical answer for the constraints that schools face. So right now, a lot of schools don't actually have like the kitchen infrastructure that they would need to prepare meals from scratch, and they don't have the labor. And so um, big food companies, um, I think that they're very effective at saying, well, it's going to cost way too much to get kitchens. And even if you get the kitchens, you're not going to be able to afford the labor. And can you really trust workers to handle raw chicken? We don't think you can. Um, but there's a lot of counterexamples these days. And actually, there was a really interesting pilot um, that was done in New York City public schools that shows that um, conversion to scratch cooking can actually be cost neutral. Um, and I think that there are a lot of examples from school districts um, of all sizes um, that really show that um, you can actually do scratch cooking in schools. And when you do, it improves food quality. And that really helps increase participation. And even, um, I think, more importantly, it allows schools to move beyond just having immediate benefits for kids and really allow school lunch programs to um, start benefiting um, people outside of the school. So like the farmers and um, food companies that might be selling products like directly to the schools. So I think that um, it's definitely um, something that is really tempting for school food service operators who have really limited budgets and administrators who feel like, you know, the program's already so complex, like let's just keep things simple um, to look at these um, manufactured products and think, okay, well, that's just really easy. Let's continue to serve that in our schools. But I think that we really can access a lot more benefits from this program when we reject that model of what real food looks like in schools and instead start to create more capacity at the community level to be really um, defining the priorities of our own food systems and using our public tax dollars to support those values. So fixing school lunch programs can address malnutrition, can address poverty, can address the problems that we have with agribusiness. You write, or you quote, scholars Bernice Fisher and Joan Tronto defining care as a species activity that includes everything we do to maintain, continue, and repair our world so that we may live in it as well as possible. Does a lack of teaching care contribute to climate change? And if so, how? Is there a lack of care in capitalism that has caused climate change? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting question. I think that um, many of us aren't really taught to think about care and to think about relational well-being. Um, oftentimes, we're sort of 
taught to think about ourselves and the whole kind of bootstrap, um, you know, mentality of, you know, we're, we're all in it for ourselves. And I think that that's a really defeatist and really negative way to think about things that really can lead to a lot of unintended consequences. Like certainly we all have some level of individual responsibility, but I think it's very important for us to be recognizing and acting on our responsibility to others and to like the, the whole sort of, you know, world around us that enables life to be possible to begin with. So I think um, one of the reasons why I am really interested in school lunch programs is that it is actually an example where we have managed um, to collectivize care in some way. Um, it, sh it certainly isn't, uh, I think, optimized in the way that it should be. But if we actually look back at the early origins of the public school lunch program, I think it's pretty inspirational that there were a group of people who recognized um, that back in the early 1900s, um, as these nonprofit school lunch programs were becoming more and po more popular, they kind of recognized and would talk about um, amongst themselves in different ladies' magazines and things like that, that, hey, we have a real issue with um, trust in our food system. Um, we don't really know what's in food. So this was kind of around the time that um, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, and we, um, until 1906, didn't even have any kind of regulation um, related to um, food purity in the U.S. So there were a lot of concerns early on about you know how do we even know um, what kids are eating and um, how do we make sure that we're packing lunches that are of good nutritional quality that actually will stay fresh and appetizing. And this was a problem that a lot of individual women in particular were facing and were discussing. And one of the things that they came up with was, well, it would actually be a lot easier for us um, to be able to pay a professional home economist or nutritionist who could plan the menus and who could screen the quality of the food as it's coming in and who could actually prepare meals on site so that they're hot um, for kids and we don't have to worry about, you know, the transportation. So I think that um, I take a lot of inspiration from these women and their allies who really recognized a problem that felt individual and sort of connected it through consciousness raising um, to, hey, this is actually a problem that a lot of people face, and then started to experiment and really advocate for um, public solutions to a problem that they had experienced individually. So I, I think um, where I would like to see us move forward in the future is really recognizing that a lot of the problems that many of us um, might experience related to um, not only like food systems or the environment or climate change are things that um, are really challenging for us to really make a huge difference on as individuals. And it's only through collective action and really building new forms of infrastructure and public programs and policy commitments um, and regulations um, in particular that uh, we can really start to make, I think, a, a pretty profound difference on some of these very complex problems. I have so many more questions for you, but <clears throat> we're running out of time, and I just want to make sure that everybody understood that there are so many other concepts that we did not touch on today with Jennifer, including the ideas of community mothering, feminist food politics, food justice. There is so much more that we could have been talking about with Jennifer today, but we just simply don't have time. So you have to check out Jennifer's book, 
Name again is The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools, written by Jennifer E. Gaddis, our guest today. You can find out more about Jennifer at jenniferelainegaddis.com, and you can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Jennifer E. Gaddis. So there is a lot more to this book than just that. Now, we end each and every one of our interviews with what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I'm just not too sure if the first one is going to work out that well, so I might have a second one for you. Is CARE a socialist plot? Huh. <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think that um, uh, plot makes me feel like it's somehow like nefarious, but I think that um, certainly like CARE as it is more collectivized. Um, some people might call it socialist, but I think that um, CARE is something that should be socialized and shared personally. So we were recently talking to anthropologist Maggie Dickinson, author of Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's yeah. F- Food Safety Net. It was, she was fantastic. When we talked to Maggie, she uh, we also discussed the breaking of the social contract, that implicit agreement of cooperation among members of society in exchange for social benefits. The most popular example being sacrificing some freedom for protection by the state from violence. Do you believe the social contract is already broken with care workers, with school lunch workers? And if not yet, what will happen when it is finally shattered, when the social contract is finally shattered? Because that seems to be the direction we're going. Yeah, I think that Maggie and her work points to some really important trends um, about how um, we have just this huge um, number of low-wage jobs um, that are subsidized through public programs like food stamps or like um, free or reduced-price school lunches. And I think that certainly, um, in my opinion, um, because school lunch is something that happens during the school day. It should be something that we view as a public responsibility, but I don't think that it's right for us to think of it as a poverty program that subsidizes families' wages. I think that um, school lunch should actually be a universal social service, and we should be holding employers accountable for covering the full costs of like the social reproduction of their workforce. So I think that Maggie and I would probably agree on that point. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on our show. And if listeners want to find our interview with Maggie Dickinson, they can also find that at thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being on, Jennifer. This is a very, very enlightening book, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chance to read your work. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate it. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I always like reading that tagline right as I'm hoping that the person is hanging up or falling offline. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what awaits you on the off-world colonies? What awaits you on the off-world colonies? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, via Twitter, or email it to us. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins. A book we featured on yesterday's show, Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier challenging the privatization of space. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Yes. Uh, what awaits you in the off-world colonies? I'm That's... hoping uh, for you, it's like a vaporizer or some sort of inhaler so you can actually <laughs> talk a little bit better there, my friend. Sebastian M. says, death. <laughs> Noah S. says, co-ed showers like in Starship Troopers. Death makes me laugh too much. I don't know. Vincent F. says, probably more fake woke BS. <laughs> Chris H. says, slavery. Ray O says, in the name of Buster Keaton's boat, damn if I know. 
Mika D says, student loans. <laughs> Astrid M says, limits. replicants and sad, unfulfilled dreams in oh. the rain. Sebastian W <laughs> says, illegal aliens. Wally R says, long lines at the fuel pump. <laughs> Eric T says, HAL 9000. What awaits you in the <laughs> off-world colonies? Aaron B says, raw vitamin D, baby. Aaron R, or Bradley R says, alien genocide, intergalactic slave trade, earthling supremacy. You know, the usual. <laughs> Uh, John T. says, a surprising number of mosquitoes and biting flies. Jason B. says, the inevitable containment breach. Aaron D. says, a little well-deserved cosplay. Braden S. <laughs> Some bastard charging me rent on a bunk I share with three people. Adam M., designer of this logo, says, adventure. <laughs> Marie G. says, coronavirus. <laughs> Ladio says, I shall be queen. And Aaron B. says, Keith Richards. So I came up with a new term for uh, going to a bar, and all the bar there is all the beer there is bad, saying that the bar suffers from coronavirus, and it's just not catching on. I'm really working hard to make coronavirus a term to tell you that the beer list at a bar is awful. Alex will have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll announce this week's winner on our show tomorrow, Thursday. 10 a.m. Central Time here in Chicago. This is how office hours are now at a new time. We are now holding our weekly meet and greet that is more a drink and think or a think and drink. I think it's a drink and think. That takes place at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little Indian neighborhood. Now happens on Fridays, every Friday evening, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until at least 9. Now every Friday night. When I posted the announcement on social industry outlets, listeners responded that Fridays are far more convenient and it's way more likely they'll be able to hang out with us at office hours as they are happening on the weekend. And that has turned out to be true. We have had a lot more people showing up on office hours on Friday nights than were on Wednesdays. And we want all of you to join us every Friday night at 6 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon here in Chicago, the bar downstairs from these here studios. Finally, we do our show from these studios, of course, above Carrie's Lounge. There's also a meeting space up here that is open for anyone in the community or community groups to organize in a neutral setting. You don't have to meet at your friend's home. You don't have to clean yours up because other activists are coming over. If you want to have access to the space, contact me again at chuckatthisisl.com and I'll connect you with the person who is in charge of scheduling at the space. Again, if you're a community member or organization who is looking for a neutral space to meet, contact me at chuckatthisisl.com and we just might have the space for you. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live show streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Uh, architect Stephanie Carlisle will be on to talk about her fast company piece, I've Been Polluting the Planet for Years. I'm not an oil exec. I'm an architect. You know, I believe this is the first person from that had an article at Fast Company that's going to be featured on our show in about 15 years. I'm pretty sure it's been quite a long time. Tune into tomorrow's show streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if, to hear all the answers to this week's question from hell and find out if you've won. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Jennifer Gaddis for being on our show. Make sure you check out her book, The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and jobs in American public schools and find out more about Jennifer at jenniferelainegaddis.com. Follow Jennifer on Twitter at Jennifer E. Gaddis. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is Hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>